You're listening to the Redemption Hill Church podcast from Tallahassee, Florida. For more information, visit our website at rh-church.com. Hey, Pastor Chad here. I'm so glad you've taken the time to listen. We're currently studying verse by verse through the book of Acts. Among other things, we'll see the mission, the persecution, and the expansion of the church. Now, time for this week's message. If you guys are here, and maybe, maybe you um, in the chaos this morning of leaving your home, um, you were just trying to get the car packed, the kids inside, and your clothes on, and maybe by chance you forgot your Bible. I know a lot of people today have them on their electronic devices, but we do have um, copies of, a, of a, the Bible here. And so if, if you're here, maybe you want a Bible, you need a Bible for this morning. Uh, if you guys just raise your hand, I, Dennis and uh, Mr. Warner back there, and, and we can get you guys a Bible, just get their attention. Um, if you don't have a Bible and would like it, by all means, you are free to keep it. Okay, so this morning, if you guys have those Bibles... Why don't you guys open them up to Acts, Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 11. We had a great Sunday morning last week with some missionaries, um, the Wootens, and I think many of you are here, um, a very interesting family. They've been in Africa for, I guess it was, it's been eight to 10 years thereabouts, and uh, some really incredible stories, and it's a family that I hope that we will continue to pray for. I, I we were chit-chatting with them after the service, and they are on Facebook, and so, um, you know, Facebook's one of those things that um, allows us to be able to keep in contact a little bit better, see pictures and see that kind of stuff, and so, so maybe, you know, along for just praying with them, maybe you want to try and get to know them a little bit, see what's going on, see some of their ministry over there, so go ahead, and, and I would encourage you guys to find them um, on Facebook. They also had that um, thing last week where you could sign up to be on our newsletter. So hopefully many of you did sign up and you'll receive that as they send that out. All right. So Acts chapter 11, and we're going to look at the verses 19 through 30, through the end of the chapter. I'm going to go ahead and read those and we'll pray and then we'll get into it. All right. Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19, it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Verse 24, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold of the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. 
So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can come together with a great sense of freedom and that we can open up your word, that we can sing songs and we can study and pray and we we can do this all publicly. We don't have to hide this. Lord, we, we take some of these things for granted so often and we haven't faced much persecution. Lord, I pray now as we get into your word, as we as we see these stories, as we, as we read and as we talk and as we ponder the early church and your movement, Lord, I pray that you use this passage today to change us, to give us maybe a new or fresh perspective, to challenge us, to consider what Christian really means, why it's important, and how it should change us. Holy Spirit, I pray right now that you begin to soften our hearts, prepare our minds for your words. Lord, I pray that you give me your heart, that you give me your passion, that you give me your thoughts. I pray that everything that we do, everything that we say, everything that we proclaim is honoring and glorying to you. I pray that we are faithful to your word. So again, Holy Spirit, we ask you to to do great things here this morning. And Jesus is beautiful, precious, holy, and amazing name that we pray. Amen. So our normal course of action here at Redemption Hill is we study Scripture verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we've gone through the book of Acts, and we've seen really the creation of the early church. And, you know, it started in the first chapter of Acts with with Jesus. He's there in the the first eight to ten verses. In verse 8, we, he lives, kind of gives his last command as he's about to ascend into heaven. It's the Great Commission kind of reworded here in Acts. And, he, and in that point, as he's about to ascend to heaven, he's given the disciples this, this commandment. Not a request, you know, not a condition, but it was a commandment. It was, it was, uh, it was something for them to do. It wouldn't be convenient. It wouldn't be easy. It wouldn't be pain-free. But he told them to go to Jerusalem first, and then Judea, Samaria, and then ultimately the ends of the earth. And he challenged those disciples, those 12 that were there, to go. And as we've gone through the book of Acts, we've seen how you know, they went originally to Jerusalem. And they abided there in Jerusalem. And, and then we see how the Holy Spirit came. We saw the day of Pentecost. And, and we see this revival of sorts within Jerusalem where these Jews who were really Jews by um, nationality, um, they were, if they were religious, they were just basing it all on religion, on, on rules, on following these things from the Old Testament. And there was this great separation between Jesus and, and the things that he had come and had told the people in the way that they were acting and living And so those disciples there, they focused all their their time, their energy, and their efforts there in Jerusalem with those Jews. And they're going, they're preaching the temples and the different synagogues. And eventually it got so big, 
Like every time we're reading the beginning of Acts, it's like, boom, 3,000, 5,000. And it gets to the point where like Luke, who wrote, who wrote Acts, he couldn't keep up with the numbers. So it was just multitudes. And so the church is growing rapidly. And the disciples find themselves like where they have so much to do. They're, they're trying to teach. They're trying to lead. They're trying to do all these things. And, 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 and sometimes we have good things, profitable things, even in the church that, that, that are important. But one of the lessons we learned was you know, the, the pastor or the elder or the, the one up in charge can't do everything. And it got to the point where as these, as these disciples were, were trying to go on to teach, they were getting bogged down with these other responsibilities. And one of those responsibilities was caring for the widows. Right? I mean, it's important. It's a good thing, a noble thing. It was a right thing to do. But whenever there was a problem, they would all come back to the disciples. And so finally the disciples decided it was time to, to um, widen the net and get others involved. And so they call seven, disciples, or seven deacons, we often refer to them as. And they list those seven. It was those guys' responsibility now to take care of the widows. After that, we, we learn a little bit more about one of those first deacons, a guy by the name of Stephen. And Stephen, um, his description was very similar to this one Barnabas that we read about. And he was a man that was full of faith, and, and he was um, faithful in that responsibility of caring for the, the widows. But he began to grow, and, it, and, and his abilities, his, his talents grew with it. And so he went from beyond just caring for the needs, but going into these different synagogues and, and teaching and preaching. And then those old Jewish religious leaders, the same group that went after Jesus, got perturbed and went after Stephen. And we read about ultimately Stephen is held on trial. And while on trial, he uses this as an opportunity to preach, to, to share what Jesus did to that Jewish Supreme Court, that Sanhedrin. And they get so mad, they get so upset that the Bible tells us that they took them outside the city walls because inside the city they had no authority over life and death. They could, they could cast some judgment, but when it came down to a life or death sentence, that was over their power. They, they would have to go to the, the Roman government for that. And so they take them outside of the city and they begin to stone him. And again, this isn't just taking little pebbles and they're throwing at them. But these are great boulders. And in that was interesting because, because as they were getting prepared to stone Stephen, they go and they would disrobe their outer garment because they knew it was going to be sweaty. It was going to be tough. It was going to take a lot of effort. It would take some time. And so as they do that, as they take their outer garment off, they go and there's this one young Jew, the, the, the high-ranking Jewish leader, the one who had all sorts of training extremely smart, very passionate. This, this young man stood there and, and they got their last kind of sense of approval from him as they laid their coats at his feet. We later learned that individual who gave the final approval on the stoning of Stephen was this guy by the name of Saul. Well, they go and they stone Stephen. 
And in the midst of this, we see Stephen as these rocks are being hurled at him. He looks up to heaven and he sees Jesus. Jesus is standing with his arms stretched out. And as Stephen is making reference to that, it only makes them more and more upset. And from that point on, as as Stephen breathes his last breath here on earth, this rage fills this guy named Saul. And he goes on this witch hunt, and he's chasing down all these Jews, all these religious Christians, all these people who were following Jesus. And so he, he focuses in there in Jerusalem, and then he wants to go outside Jerusalem. And, and we heard this story about how he goes to the high priest to receive basically the names and the addresses of those in Damascus, where this large um, amount of Christians apparently had fled to. And on his travel there, he has an encounter with Jesus. He's blinded. And he comes to know Jesus, and he goes there into Joppa. And it's this cool story, and ultimately he, he is um, healed of his blindness. And then this, the same guy who was hunting down Christians, who was going after the Christians, who was persecuting the Christians, now is a Christian. And like most of us, it would be difficult to let somebody in of that mindset. I, when we talked about Saul, um, I said probably the best modern comparison that we could make of Saul today is to think of him as being part of ISIS, an extreme religious man who carried out his religious acts with violence and persecution. And for most of us, um, if we have this sudden high-ranking ISIS individual come to know Christ. All of a sudden, they came and they sat in the back row of our church, and we had seen their picture on Fox News or wherever. We'd be a little nervous, wouldn't we? I mean, when it comes to, like, shaking hands, like, we're probably not going to embrace him with a big hug right away, are we? I mean, most of us would rather him sit in front of us so we can watch every step. And so it was a struggle initially for Paul. And there's this guy named Barnabas. The same Barnabas that we read about at the very end of Acts chapter 4. How he, he originally probably from Cyprus area makes way over to Jerusalem. Um, is not necessarily probably a Hellenist in that he wasn't necessarily Greek. Overly accepted within the Jewish church in Jerusalem, but he had this uncanny ability to be an encourager. And in Acts chapter 4, those last two verses, I think it's 36 and 37, we read about how he sold his land. He sold some land and he gave it to the church, gave it to the, laid it at the disciples' feet. Now, it's important for us because today, like, where we live here in our country, when we think about land, is different now than it was back in these days. Like for, for several of you here, um, maybe the house that you live in, that's not the only house that you've lived in, right? I mean, some of you, like myself, I'm not originally from Tallahassee. I've been in Pensacola for a while, went back to Michigan for a while, 
now back to Tallahassee. And some of you, you can, it takes more than two hands to count how many homes that you've owned in your lifetime because of travel or whatever. But, but back in these days, like land was, was extremely important. And it was very rare to own something. In fact, most of this would be passed on from generation to generation to generation. And so when, when Barnabas goes and he sells some of his land, you know, he's selling away his, his, his inheritance. He, he's giving away what would be potentially brought down to his children, taking out of the family line. But he does this. He, he goes and he sells and he gives to the church because he sees this great need. Later on, we see Barnabas again with Paul. And, and Paul's trying to get to Jerusalem, trying to get in back with those disciples, the apostles, and those church leaders there. They're all scared. But it was Barnabas who accepts Paul. I mean, he sees that there's change. He sees that the Holy Spirit's on Paul. That there's a difference in this guy now. And it was Barnabas who brought him into the group and introduced them. And, and he was the peacekeeper. Barnabas was the bridge builder. And so Paul's in Jerusalem for a short season, but ultimately they all believe it's best for, for Paul and for the rest for the church for him to go back to Tarsus. And we left Paul back in, I think it was Acts chapter 9. And what we read today, we read again that something special, something amazing is happening. And there's this city named Antioch. Now, now listen, Antioch was a pretty use a name for a city in ancient days. We know of at least 16 towns that were, or cities that were known as Antioch. Later on, when we get to Acts chapter 13, we're going to read about a different Antioch. But this particular Antioch that we read about this morning, this was like the granddaddy of them all. This was the largest Antioch, the most important Antioch in scripture in ancient days. In fact, it was the third largest city of the day. I mean, second only, or third only to Rome and Alexandria. They estimate the population in Antioch to be over a half million people, which was huge. Uh, Antioch was a very influential city, a very luxurious city. In fact, if you were to go to Antioch during this time period, the, the main road was paved over four miles, which is huge. And it was paved in marble. And as you would walk along this road, there would be these Roman colonies on both sides. And in fact... I know you guys are all eager to learn this tidbit of information, but Antioch at this time was the only city in the world that had lighted streetlights. That's big, isn't it? But it shows there was this level of luxury. Uh, they were known, they were famous for a chariot racing and gambling. Uh, they were known for um, this deliberate, extreme desire for stuff. Is this getting to sound a little familiar? <laughs> it was a very pagan town. Uh, not only did they worship the Roman and the Syrian deities, but they had a, a special altar for the goddess that they worshipped, Daphne. Antioch was also considered to be the great melting pot of that time, that we know of at least five cultures that were melting into Antioch. And Jews were, were a portion of it. They estimate about one-seventh of the population was Jewish. 
Really, for us today to think about Antioch, we have to understand that it was a very pagan, a very wicked city. And in fact, most people say that it was probably, if we were to, to, to gauge the wickedness, it was probably second only to Corinth. And for us to give us a picture today, we ought to think of Antioch in the same light or lens as Las Vegas. And this is where we have Christians coming. And I say, I give us all that background to come back to this. When we get to this point, when we begin to read in that very first verse that we read in verse 19, we talk about now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose from Stephen. It was the very beginning we talked about. Stephen, right? When Stephen dies, there's this great persecution. And so the Christians, many of the Christians, ultimately go and they disperse. And some end up here in Antioch, 300 miles north of Jerusalem. But this is what to me is so, what, what stands out to me in this first few verses the most is this. The way Luke refers to the people here. Because we have this great revival that takes place, right? They're, they're going, and, and eventually, when we, as we read this, eventually they're, 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 they start off just preaching and teaching and telling the Jews only. And again, remember, as we've talked about this for several weeks now, there's this great division between the Jews and the Gentiles. The world basically is on a map is divided between two. You're either Jewish or you're Gentile. You're, you're, a Gentile is everybody who's not Jewish. And there was this great disdain, this great hatred between the two groups. And so these Jews go and they leave Jerusalem after Stephen's been stoned. And, and a few things pop out to me. One is this. Um, they're chased off. They're running for their lives. And they leave. But, but what's so critical, what's so important to this is this. They go, but they don't stop believing and they don't, don't stop acting the way they did in Jerusalem. It's not like they leave, they, they flee, and they go into hiding so no one can find them. I mean, they're going and, and they're leaving. They're going to new towns, but they're, they're having all these different prayer groups in these homes. I mean, there are people that are still chasing them. This is not a game of like, we, we're going to a little slap on the wrist if you get caught. Most of this, this is like life and death. If you get caught, you're going to be arrested. You're going to be beaten. You'll be flogged in many cases you'll be put to death. And yet they leave, they, they go to other areas. And rather than stay quiet, rather than, than, than try and hide their identities, they're telling people. And it starts off with the Jews, but Luke makes a point here in Antioch that it goes beyond just the Jews. He refers to them um, in verse 20 as Hellenists. Okay, Hellenists basically is, they were Greek. They were Gentiles. They weren't Jews. And so much like Peter and Cornelius, a chapter back, we have the same thing going on here where, where those, those people on the run are going and they begin with Jews, but then they begin to just open it and just say, listen, Jesus is for everybody. And they just start telling people. And it says the hand of the Lord was on them in a great number believe. Now, this is, to me, what's so awesome. When you read that, when you read about this revival, when you see all this stuff taking place in those first few verses that we read, is, listen, there's no apostles. There's no disciples. There's no preachers. None of that's there. 
This is strictly people, regular people who believe in Jesus, who love Jesus, who go somewhere and they tell their neighbors about Jesus. That's how the revival in this massive city of Antioch takes place because of regular people who who loved Jesus so much that they couldn't hold it, they couldn't hide it, that they had to share it and tell others about him. And the, the Holy Spirit just begins to be a wrecking ball there. And people are coming and they're added. And, and so news gets back to Jerusalem, kind of like the mothership of the Christian church. And news reaches them that something wild is happening, something great is happening. This, this, a lot of people are coming to know the Lord in this city, Antioch. And so they decide they need to send somebody up there to see if they could help in the situation. It wasn't necessarily to verify that it was good or bad. They just knew that there was something big happening and there was no leadership and they needed somebody there to probably go help and guide all these new believers. And again, they don't pick one of the disciples. This isn't Peter this time like we, we've read about before. Okay, Peter, go take care of it. As best we can tell, something else is going on that most of those disciples aren't present, aren't available to be sent out. And so they choose Barnabas. They choose Barnabas to leave and to go, to go to Antioch. And I love this. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to be around people who, who maybe passed their, their school age. They, maybe it's in college. Maybe it's your professional life. They're older. But, but when, if you get around a group of people that are new believers, you know, they, they've heard maybe a story. Maybe they come to church and they've they heard a message or maybe it's a conversation you've led them with, and then finally they decide they want to become believers, they want to accept Jesus, and they go through all that, and they genuinely become Christians. But, but it's such amazing t- time because they're still raw, right? Like they don't know the rules that we begin to establish, do they? And so they just, there's this, this great freedom about them. They just go and they're excited. And the unfortunate thing that happens is after a while, they begin to rub shoulders with the rest of the people at church. The excitement dampers down, doesn't it? And then they learn, well, I guess it's not as easy as just being happy about Jesus and telling others about Jesus. There's a lot of other rules. Like I'm only allowed to listen to this kind of music or I can only do these kind of things and whatever it might be. But this is what is awesome. Barnabas gets there. Verse 24, we kind of have this spiritual description of the life of Barnabas. It says this, for he was a good man. What's interesting about that phrase, for he's a good man. Again, the disciple Luke wrote this, this book. He also wrote the gospel of Luke. He only used that description for one other person in his writings, and that was Joseph of Arimathea. He was a good man. And then after that, it says that he was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And again, go back and read about the description of of Stephen, because it's the same basic description, that he was a man full of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Barnabas is one of those guys that, that we would all do well, every believer here would do well to emulate. Barnabas was not the guy that needed or required a spotlight. Barnabas was not the guy that needed or required a title. Barnabas was a guy that was deep in his faith, that was deep in the word, and it caused him to act. And he did as the Lord led. He was a gracious giver. He was full of grace and mercy. And so he 
goes and, and he helps that, those people there in Antioch. And then very quickly he realizes the task is too large for one person. It's too, the job's too big for just Barnabas. He needs help. And the scripture doesn't tell this, so this is just my two cents. I can almost picture Barnabas at night after being there a while, having restless nights, realizing that the vision that maybe the Lord had placed on him, the opportunity there was so big, was so great. And he realized that, that, that his shoulders weren't big enough to carry all of it, that he needed some help. And he certainly probably cried out to God, asking him for, for wisdom, asking him to bring people, asking him to, to show him who could step up and who could lead. And somewhere in that, that time period, I, I believe like the Holy Spirit lets the light go off and he remembers Saul. That young guy that God transformed, had changed, had redeemed. And he was the one that had brought him into Jerusalem and had had those, those conversations as they journeyed to Jerusalem, as they journeyed back to Tarsus. Like he had some heart-to-heart conversations with Paul. He, he knew him. And so he decides he's going to go and look for Paul. Although it's only been two chapters since we've read about Paul, and this time frame we estimate it's been somewhere between eight and ten years. And he goes, and, and it says there that... Um, Verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When we get to that Greek word there to look, he had to seriously search and find. It took a lot of investigation. It took a lot of effort for him to go and be able to find where, this, where Paul was. It wasn't an easy, like, here's his address. Go, knock, knock. Hey, come with me. Let's go. This is, this is a big pride. It took him a lot of effort to, to find where Paul actually was now. It had been 10 years. I mean, this is before Facebook. It's before cell phones. It's not a quick text. There's no quick Snapchat with Paul. And so he's going and he's trying to find, and he's looking and he's laboring. And then finally he finds Paul and he gets Paul to come back with him. And then for a year, for a year, Barnabas and Paul are in the church of Corinth. And this church, this is, this is really our first real, genuine, Gentile church. This would be in a, in a very influential and important church in church history. This will be the church that will become the home base for Paul and for Barnabas. This will be the church that will send them off on these missionary journeys. And they get there, and they spend a year working and discipling. The very end of verse 26, and it says, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Today, that's a very widely used word, isn't it? Christians. Today, that's a word that basically um, is a very large encompassing word. For, for some, we look at it as a religious identification, a stamp, a tattoo of our faith. Or for some, it's just basically, I'm not Jewish or Muslim or Buddhist or whatever, right? For some, it's, it's more of a, a nationality type thing, like the United States of America is a Christian nation. It's a very widely used term. It's a, it's a term that we call ourselves, isn't it? If we're believers, if, we, if we're sitting and if we're going to church, and someone asks you about your faith, it's a, it's a term we may, not, may use to describe ourselves. Yeah, we're Christians. 
This was what, to me, is so fascinating about this particular statement. And that word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. One more time here towards the end of the book of Acts. And then again in 1 Peter. That's it. Three times in the Gospels or in the, in the New Testament. But this was not a word. It was not a name that was given that the, that the church got around. They didn't have some like, okay, guys, we're going to have, let's brainstorm today. We need a catchy name. So what do you think we should call ourselves? It's not what happened. That, that name that was given to those believers in Antioch, see, that name was given to them by the outsiders. It was given to them by those pagans, the ones outside of this movement. See, they're, they're sitting, they're watching, they're seeing there's something different. These people, they're acting, they're, they're being identified now, not, no longer as Jewish Again, leading up to this part, as we've seen the disciples, as we've seen all this stuff going on, they're just viewing what's happening as, a, as a, almost like a denomination within Judaism. Now the people are looking, they're seeing like, this is different. And so what we have there, and even in the name itself to me, is fascinating because you, what happens is they took um, a Latin suffix, the last part of Christians, the ins, the I-N-S. What that meant was to be longer, to be part of and they take that Latin suffix and they combine it with the Hebrew word for Messiah, for Christ. They, they combine it with Christ. And so you have this Hebrew and Latin combining. Why is that so important? Why is that term so important? Why is this so important? I had a chance this past week to speak at North Florida Christians Middle School and High School um, Chapel. And I, it's a, a thing I, I truly enjoy to do, and I've had the opportunity to do it several times. This past week, I, I talked to them. You know, sometimes I'll ask, is there something I can talk to the kids about, the youth about? And so the response I got was, well, maybe you could talk to them about bullying and dating and, like, the eternal consequences of both. And I'm like, whoa. See if I can whip something out about that real quick. Uh, but anyways, I said to say this. The point that I tried to drive home with those teenagers was this. That your beliefs will fuel your behavior. Your beliefs fuel your behavior. And that's for the little kids downstairs. That's for our teenagers for the young adults in the room. <laughs> That's for all of us. Guys, your beliefs fuel your behavior. Matthew 6, 21 says this, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And sometimes when we read that, we consider, we think treasure, and our mind automatically goes to money, and we start thinking about that, and we think about, well, yeah, yeah. But listen, it's deeper, it's bigger, it's wider than money. That's like one component where your treasure is. That's where your heart will be too. Your beliefs will fuel your behavior. And that's what we see happening in Antioch. These people, they believed in Jesus. Like they believed what Jesus said in Matthew when, when he was asked what the, the, the greatest commandment was. And he said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and mind. Everything. It starts with, it starts, it ends with that. To love the Lord your God. And they believed it. 
I mean, they, they caught it hook, line, and sinker. I mean, they were all in. We've been the last few weeks going through our small group, and we're going through a book called Crazy Love. It's not easy. It's not palatable. My guess, Courtney, I've had a chance to kind of be in part of both groups that we have going on right now. Like, there's probably been some very lively discussions. And I'm not saying Francis Chan, who wrote the book, is Jesus and everything that he says is inspired by God. But I'm saying this. Those people here in Antioch, they understood it. They knew it. It came at a great cost. They were not ashamed. They were sacrificing. They were giving and they were doing. And they were saying and they were telling. And they believed it. And because they believed it so much, it had an impact on the way they behaved. To the point as that particular passage ends, there's a prophet that arrives. And the prophets aren't nearly as prevalent in the New Testament as they were in the Old Testament, but there's this guy named Agabus who shows up, and the Holy Spirit gave him a vision of a coming famine. And, you know, one of our first inclinations when we sense or we realize that something bad's coming, we want to begin to hoard it all in and make all those preparations to save all of our stuff for us in our time of need. Now, listen, I think it's wise to do, to make preparations, to have things in place for your family and for you. But as they get the bad news of something bad coming, the church takes up an offering. Not to just take care of the church's bills, but eventually that offering, check this out, it goes back to Jerusalem. It goes back to Jerusalem, where, where the Jews are. Like this whole battle between the Jews and the Gentiles. Eventually, this Gentile church will send offering to help the Jewish church. Could you imagine how difficult that may have been to swallow for that Jerusalem church? All these people that they had spent so many years looking down upon, spitting upon, thinking badly about will come to their rescue. Winston Churchill said, um, we make a living by what we get but we make a life by what we give. I love the idea. Sometimes we get so caught up with what do we give? How much do we give? What's the right limit? What's too much? What's not enough? When we were in Acts chapter 2, there was this very, for lack of better words, this almost Christian communism going on where they're all huddled up into one community. They're all selling everything and they're living all in one happy utopia of sorts. Now listen, that's not what was ultimately the design and the plan. That was a temporary band-aid of the situation they were in. All it did was it took place, it, it happened right there in Jerusalem for a small, short season. But here we get a better principle, a better understanding. It says in verse 29, so the disciples determined, I would underline this, everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers. Everyone according to his ability. What does that mean? I want a percentage. I want a dollar amount. You wrestle with God. What's your ability? I'll tell you this. Um, those people right there, I mean, because of the term that they were assigned, because of the name they were given, 
because of the sacrifice they had already made. I feel very confident in saying one of the first things they did was decide what they could give, how much they could give, and then they decided how often they can go out to eat afterwards or how often they could go to the mall or when it was time to get a new chariot or whatever it was. This isn't a plea for your money, guys. It really isn't. And one of the commitments I've made to our church from the very, from the very even before we had our first service, that the method in which we teach is expository. So we go verse by verse. It's at the beginning here. That's why to this date, I don't, don't, I don't recall at least, there even being a one singular message solely on giving. I mean, my philosophy is this. When we get to it in Scripture, we will talk about it unashamedly. So I don't come up here begging and pleading for money. There, there'll be times, and quite honestly, probably soon, where we'll present opportunities. But those are spiritual things that you and God need to wrestle with. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Your beliefs fuel your behaviors. And one of the saddest things today is to see the way that word Christian has been abused and watered down. None of us are perfect. We never will be this side of heaven. But I hope as we continue this journey, as we continue to see the way these early believers believed this, and then because they believed it so strongly, they practiced it. When it wasn't convenient, when it wasn't easy, when it cost a lot, and for, for many it was lives. If it wasn't their life, it was the life of a loved one. It was their families that as they began to engage and in, in, in become part of this new family, their family disowned them. And for many it was a, a huge financial decision. Because when they decided to follow Jesus, they lost everything. Their homes, their bank accounts, everything. Today we make it such an easy, cheap thing. And it is easy. It's all based on God's grace. But then Jesus gave us those opportunity when he said, follow me. Follow me. That's a choice he gave them and he gives us. See, he doesn't enslave us. He doesn't force us. He allows you and me the choice to follow. I, I, there's a short video we're going to watch here, and it's only like a minute and a half. Because we've seen the way that this has begun to, to work, how they've gone from Jerusalem. Earlier in the book of Acts, we talked about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. We talked about how I went to Samaria. We've talked about... Um, Cornelius, now we're talking about Antioch. And here, this is, to me, what's amazing, because we're, we're going to see this little video. It's about a minute and a half, and it shows the growth of, of Christianity, the spread of the gospel from Jesus' day till today. And as we watch this, the way to understand is the, way it, the reason it spreads like it does is it required blood, sweat, in tears. It required people who believed it to their core. 
It was that belief, as I've said 15 times now, if you leave with nothing else, leave with the belief or the understanding is that our beliefs will fuel our behavior. Gavin? There's a lot of beige or whatever the color is for Christianity at the end of that map. Don't leave here thinking that the world is a Christian world. There's a lot of darkness in our world. There's a lot of opportunity. In my heart's belief, as much as I don't want to say it, nonetheless believe it, because the United States is no longer a Christian nation. I believe at one time we were. I believe you can go back into our founding documents, and while our founding fathers were far from perfect, you could tell that our country was built on biblical principles. But I don't believe we're a Christian nation. I'll tell you this, I also don't think we're a post-Christian nation anymore. I think we've gone past even being a post-Christian nation, and I believe we find ourselves today as a pre-Christian nation once again. And there's a lot of cars that will have a little fish bumper sticker. And there'll be some, when I was a kid, there was that WWJD bracelet that everyone wore. And there'll be new cool slogans here and there. But part of the reason the gospel spread so much in these early days goes back to Stephen and the persecution And typically, those hard times, that's when we figure out what's really there. That's when we figure out who really believes this Jesus stuff. And if days get darker and things get harder, and somebody were to arrest you for being a Christian, my question for you and for me is this. Is there enough evidence to hold that conviction? Is there enough there that cannot be disputed? Where they will say, yes, they are a Christian. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for all the things that you've done for us. Lord, I thank you for these early believers and how they with great confidence and with great passion went and they spread your word. But I thank you for the people like Barnabas who were good, who were faithful, who were loving, who were encouraging, who, who when he came into a raw situation with people who, who didn't necessarily maybe get it right, didn't fully understand what they were doing, rather than to sit back and judge, rather than to sit back and pick things apart, He rejoiced. He encouraged them to continue to stay steadfast, to cleave to you. Lord, I'm thankful that that, that we have men like Barnabas that would build a bridge in Antioch and then build a bridge to Paul and bring this man in and help train this, what would become an amazing church for over a year. I thank you for their passion, Lord. I'm thankful that there was a community there that was set apart, that was different. That the people on the outside looked in and said there was something there. They are different than everything else, so much so that they gave them a name that some 2,000 years later we still go by. Lord, I pray 
I hope and I beg that you help all of us, myself including me first, God, to really grab a hold of that idea that our beliefs, that my belief will fuel my behavior. Lord, may I be able to cling to that first great commandment that you gave to love you with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind. May that be all of our prayers. Holy Spirit, I just ask that you work in a great way. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Our goal at Redemption Hill is to see souls saved and lives changed. If the Holy Spirit spoke to you today and you made a decision, or maybe you have a question or a comment, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at chad, C-H-A-D, at rh-church.com. If you don't have a, a regular church home, we would love for you to consider visiting us. You can go to our website, rh-church.com, or find us on Facebook for directions. Until next time.